Welcome to At the Bar, a spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceros from Independent Women's Law Center, and I'm here as usual with my colleague Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum. And today, um, I really wish we had continued the tradition of, um, we used to film these in, in the late afternoons or happy hours, so we used to do them with a drink. I really wish we had, had been able to film this one that late because this topic makes me so angry. Like, I, I think I need a glass of wine to Five o'clock somewhere, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, today, we're going to be talking about the recent scandal at Stanford Law School, uh, in which a mob of angry students shouted down and attempted to essentially intellectually ambush a federal judge who was speaking on campus. Um, judge Kyle Duncan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit he attempted to deliver his talk uh, at the invitation of the FedSoc chapter um, of Stanford Law School. So students initially completely disrupted the judge's remarks, calling him a scumbag, a liar and a racist and screaming questions like, why do you hate black people? Um, and then, of course, an administrator entered the fray and actually made everything worse rather than better. Um, of course, this is just the latest episode of, of these kinds of woke uh, hysterical incidents that are enveloping the nation's universities um, and and beyond the universities, really. I mean, we've seen these kinds of incidents take place in in media organizations and in Fortune 500 companies and as restaurants well. where people um, are dining peacefully with their spouses. <laughs> yeah, um, but they really are happening at an alarming rate uh, in our elite law schools, which poses its own set of problems. I think um, for the the study of law, um, as well as for the society at large. So, um, Jennifer, can you introduce our first guest? Yeah, we're thrilled to be joined today by Tim Rosenberger, who is a student at Stanford Law School and president of Stanford's chapter of the Federal Society, which sponsored the event. Um, so welcome, Tim. Thank you for making time for this. And why don't we um, start off by just giving you the floor and letting you uh, tell people about the event, you know, why you invited Judge Duncan to campus, what he was supposed to talk about and um, what unfolded and, and whether you had any sense before it happened that something was brewing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both for having me on. And I'm, I'm really happy your viewers are interested in hearing about what's going on at Stanford. Uh, as you said, I'm the president of the Stanford chapter. And Judge Duncan was actually the first person we invited when we were setting up our calendar for this year. Uh, we're always really excited when circuit judges, any judges, uh, but particularly circuit judges want to come out to California. You know, we're, we're not the easiest place uh, to visit. And so we were grateful to him for agreeing to come. We invited him in May, actually. So we, we put him on the schedule then. And we're really interested in hearing what's going on in the Fifth Circuit because so many so many contentious legal issues go through that circuit, uh, particularly affirmative litigation on the right. You know, being in the Ninth Circuit, we see uh, we have sort of a front row seat to a lot of that happening on the left, but we don't get to see it so much on the right. So we're really excited to have Kyle Duncan uh, join us. We did get a little bit of an advance notice that something was going to go wrong, although we definitely didn't have an idea of how bad it would be. So a week before the event, so the weekend preceding the Thursday event, uh, an email was sent from the person who would eventually lead the mob to the entire board. And this email said, um, you know, please cancel this event or in the alternate, move it away from the law school. I'm sorry, who, who sent the letter? The, an administrator? No, no, this was a student. This was the oh, student who would eventually lead, lead, lead the mob. And, the student uh, asked you to uh, cancel the event or move it. Yeah, cancel the event, move it out off the law school, or move it onto Zoom. 
And, uh, you know, I'm really disappointed, actually, that that there were people who thought that seemed like a fine idea. You know, he would just sort of you know, tell, tell this judge who was flying in uh, all the way from Louisiana to be with us. Yeah, you know, thanks for coming. Uh, let's have a dinner. And then here's your Zoom link. Right. And, uh, you know, I wasn't back I wasn't, to your hotel room and log on. <laughs> right. I, I was, we were, we're, we're you know, sort, uh, I'm happy to say that we had sort of a strong core of people who prevailed and, and that didn't happen. And so I wrote back an email that I thought was uh, a conciliatory email. And I said, you know, our event's going to proceed as planned, but um, you're always welcome to come and ask questions. And if anybody wants to talk to me individually, uh, here's my cell phone number and I'm happy to meet. Uh, nobody took me up on that. Anyway. Um, Thursday, uh, I took the judge out for coffee because we were, you know, he was a bit early and we were waiting for things to start. So we went over to the coffee shop and he was saying, you know, how bad do you think this is going to be? There were sort of all of these posters up, right? There are posters with the headshots of my board members, including me, like very, a very young and thin headshot of me. So that was nice. But they had that up. They had, uh, you know, various uh, alleged wrongs of Judge Duncan. And they had really the most troubling sign was a sign, uh, that went through um, that insinuated pretty strongly that Judge Duncan's decisions are a direct cause of trans suicide. And this was really upsetting because, you know, we, we had a member of our chapter who was, is trans uh, commit suicide last year. So it was sort of just a really despicable thing uh, to do. And so, um, and I, a I trans I, member of the federal society. Yes. Yes. Uh, completed suicide last year. And, so they had these signs. That was clearly the insinuation of these signs, right? That Judge Duncan had, had you know, direct his decisions to precipitate the death of this person. So that was upsetting. But I thought, you know, there are signs. Uh, people at Stanford University are pretty at, at the chill of the of the top three law schools. Uh, people will have a little protest, and then they'll be on their way. That's sort of what we've had in the past. And so as, as he and I were walking back to the law school, we could hear this din. There was this sound. And... Um, I'm now told the part of what I was hearing is the the protesters apparently with the administration's support, help, something. We're having like a, sort of a block party going on uh, in like the main student lounge. So they, they were doing this like party atmosphere and they were playing music. Um, but I could hear just like voices. Right? It's very loud. So he and I walked into the building and there's this hallway. Uh, the law school setup, you've got to sort of walk through this hallway to get to the room he was in. And it was just lined on both sides with people with painted faces and signs. They painted were, faces. Yeah, yeah, painted faces. There was a painted poodle mix dog painted as the trans flag. And um, they they sort of, they were waving these signs at him and yelling at him and yelling pretty horrible and uh, personal things, right? Yelling, you know, they hoped that his family members would be raped because he had helped oh. over three dogs and yelling that you know, just, just horrible, horrible things at him. So we walk into the room. And there was a good core of federal society members there, but the room was, you know, the protesters were not in the room. They'd already postered it, but there weren't that many protesters in the room. Uh, and then, you know, just as we were about to start, the mob moved in from the hall into the room, sort of took over, you know, filled, filled the corridors and was, you know, f filling the space. And so I uh, did the introduction and sort of, you know, there was already a lot of noise and booing, but I just sort of read through my prepared introduction like I was doing a hostage tape uh, and then <laughs> handed it off to the judge. And he was, you know, not going to just read his remarks to a room that couldn't hear him. He he uh, tried to get started and there was this just din and crosstalk. He would say something like, 
you know, we have to have a free exchange of ideas and somebody would yell, you know, what about freedom for black voters and, you know, wherever, or uh, we have to agree on difference. And he's like, you know, what about people with, with different genders? I mean, it was just this constant crosstalk, but also noise. And this went on for 15-ish minutes, um, at which point the DEI team came down, I thought to say, you know, we have a policy against disruptions. We're going to start ejecting people. But instead, as you saw in that tape, there was sort of this prepared uh, speech. And at that point, this was sort of an unsalvageable event. It was an hour long thing. Right. We, we actually have a, a little clip from yeah. that well, portion. Um, and it, it sounds for me, to me, I gather from what you say, it's like a lot of the stuff that transpired before that is much worse. But, um, but this is the piece where we're, we're going to run. I am an associate dean and I would love to answer your question. Can I? Yeah, and to this room because you're asking to the room as well. Is that okay? So you've invited me to speak here, and I'm being heckled nonstop. And I'm just asking for an administrator to sign the That's an administrator. If you want a marketplace of ideas, you've gotten what you wanted, take it. But do you want an echo chamber? What's the issue? Can I help you? I guess I have to hear remarks, but they're not letting me get it. Go ahead. Yes, please. And I have to write something down because I'm so uncomfortable up here. Um, and I don't say that for sympathy. I just say I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, I'm uncomfortable because this event is tearing at the fabric of this community that I care about and I'm here to support. And I don't know, and I have to ask myself, and I'm not a cynic to ask this, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this worth it? It is an aesthetic. But for many people in this law school who work here, who study here, and who live here, your advocacy, your opinions from the bench land as absolute disenfranchisement of their rights and does land. So looking at that video, I mean, um, I, I was worried, like I said on the outset, that I'm, I'm just going to get too angry to talk about that. There's something about that, the way that that DEI dean talks that makes me want to, sets my teeth on edge and makes me want to like get extremely angry. Um, but I guess two questions. One, um, what what was it like in the room after the administrator spoke, because that's when a lot of the videos sort of cut off. Um, was there any calming down of anything? Uh, and then the second thing is um, the university did issue a letter of apology afterwards uh, that included the phrase, what happened was inconsistent with our policies on free speech, and we are very sorry about the experience you had while visiting our campus. Um, and this is an apology to Judge Duncan. So uh, do you feel that that apology is sufficient? 
Well, uh, to your first question, there is definitely a change in the in the atmosphere after that Dean speaks. So, you know, uh, Dean Steinbach gives that speech. Uh, Duncan goes back up to the lectern. The mob continues briefly. And then the man you can see sort of standing next to her in the maroon shirt, who's like her little sidekick, then goes and confers with like the leader of the mob, like front and center, like head protester, who stands up and gives like, says, you know, I want half of you to leave in protest. And I want half of you to stay and like bear witness in protest. So a whole bunch, a whole bunch of people leave, and the room, you know, the, the change in the mix of people does help at that point. Uh, to the extent that it's less, you know, it's less like it seems like it's going to break into melee. Uh, but the judge, you know, this is an hour long event. We're now thirty some minutes in. Uh, you know, the, the event's over. Right, like the 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 time to talk about uh, Twitter and gun regulation has passed. So Duncan just goes directly into a Q and A, and that goes. I mean, it's not the same, just like tense, loud fracas, but it's still a mess. Uh, you know, a student gets into it with him. This guy's holding a sign that says uh, Kyle Duncan can't find the clit. And uh, Duncan says, you know, what does that mean? And the guy says, yells at, you know, again, Fifth Circuit judge, I'm a gay man. I fuck men. I can find a prostate. Why can't you find the clit? And so <laughs> it did not get better. Uh, you know, and eventually, eventually we have what a couple. What is wrong with people? Yeah. I mean, we have a couple exchanges like that, at which point we just call it and it's sort of getting tense again. And the marshals take me and the judge uh, out and, uh, the mob sort of descends on the remaining Federalists. Wait, why were you this really? This really reminds me, by the way, of, uh, to, to show that none of this is new except the administration's response. Um, Mr. Samler's Planet by Saul Bellow. There's a scene in that book where the students, the students in the 60s are screaming at their professor, you know, um, like this old man's like his bolts are dry. He can't F, right? Like the same kind of stuff. <clears throat> Um, and apparently that scene came from well, Saul Bellow's experience in, in the universities. But, but, but of course, the interesting change, and I, I want to get to your, your second question you asked earlier, but the interesting change you see in this video is that the students are not anti-administration. They are with that dean, right? They, right. They, they start with like, she's a dean, you know, you have to speak. And then when that doesn't work, they move to saying, well, you know, you're not letting her speak is racism. Somebody yell, your racism is showing. And so they, the students are no longer anti-university. They are. You know, every the the university well, and the mom are on the team. 60s grew up and became the deans, right? One hundred percent. I mean, this is a very big change. It's not you know, there's nobody, there's no uh, president or dean of a university who's going to say you know, students come in and do something like this. I'm calling in the national guard, or you know, I'm calling the governor, or I'm going to you know, arrest protesters. They're just like, eh, you know, we're we're fine with this. Uh, your question was, you know, is that apology sufficient? I guess sufficient for what? I, I think it is uh, sufficient is like a first step, which is apologizing to the judge. I think that was very important. It needed to happen. I'm glad it happened. But I would point out this event was Thursday lunchtime. Uh, that apology came out, co-signed by the president of the university over the weekend after a number of reporters, including Ed, who you're going to speak with in a little bit, got this on Twitter and were writing articles. I mean, everyone in the country, it seemed like, knew about this problem uh, before that, mm. you know, solid but a little tepid apology came out. 
All right. Well, speaking of Ed, let's bring Ed Whalen on to talk about this. Um, he was the person that I think broke this story nationally um, by posting about it on Twitter. Uh, Ed is the Distinguished Senior Fellow and past president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of National Review's Bench Memos column. Um, maybe most importantly, he's the father-in-law to our esteemed colleague, Charlotte Whalen. Um, who works with us at Independent Women's Forum? So um, it's great to it's great to have you here, Ed. Great to be with you. Um, just have to put in a little plug for my friend Aaron Severium. I think he also gets credit for for breaking this story nationwide. Um, but I, I do want to ask, while I have you both here, the, the most important question, which is, what is actually to be done? Um, what ought to happen in response? Assuming that the university is not going to, for example, fire this the, the dean that um, instigated this and continued this, um, this kind of mob behavior. The students presumably will face no major consequences for having participated in it, doled out by the university. Now, I'd be very happy to be wrong about either one of those things, um, but let's assume for the sake of argument that they don't happen as they have not happened in, I wanna say similar incidents, but this is a new level, obviously, with, with the involvement of a federal judge, right? Um, so what is to be done? Um, you know, should we go with Judge Ho's suggestion that, you know, should, should, should um, you know, Republican appointed uh, judges be excluding schools or at least excluding everyone who isn't brave enough to put their names on the Federalist Society from the, you know, from the clerks list? Like what, what is the response? Because very clearly this, this is, um, you know, this is the atmosphere in our elite law schools. Well, pardon me for fighting your premise a bit. Uh, you are probably correct that Stanford will, will do nothing with respect to the DEI dean or with respect to the students. But I don't think we can simply accept that. I think we need to emphasize how outrageous that is. The apology from Stanford's president and the law school dean specified that the administrators who were there didn't do what they were supposed to do and instead made things worse. There, there definitely ought to be consequences for the, the, the DEI dean. As for the students, they were on clear notice this written policy that Stanford has on free speech, that there's a line between what one might call counter speech and disruption. And the same apology said that they clearly crossed that line, there's disruption. The same written notice, this policy says that in the past, penalties have ranged from censure to expulsion. That's the range. So we need at the minimum censure. So uh, I, I'm just, uh, Again, Stanford deserves all sorts of criticism if it doesn't take these obvious, basic, direct steps. Frankly, once you get past these steps and try to figure out what outsiders can try to do to improve the environment at Stanford, things get a lot, lot tougher. So, I, I mean, I agree with, with both you and Inez um, in the sense that I, I don't think we should, ex the outside, the public should not accept that the school will do nothing. But I also agree with Inez that the school is likely to do nothing more. That's and I, I think part of the reason is, um, I think that the composition of the student body of these places has been changing. Now, Inez says some of this was going on when she was in law school. Certainly it was going on uh, when I was in law school and I'm much older than Inez. Um, so it's definitely been happening for decades. Um, but 
it has gotten worse. It has gotten more aggressive and it is starting to involve staff. Um, and I think that's because schools are deliberately admitting more activists. They, they, it's, you know, they can pretend that they're the institution that's being protested, but in fact, they're, they're collaborating as Tim said earlier. Well, I think too, that students have become more aggressive in what their activism is. So I think, um, you know, you, you may still be drawing from the same cohort, but these are folks who are uh, ready to, to cross some lines that people wouldn't have done some time ago. Well, let me take a stab at, at, at answering the specific question. Assuming that Stanford's not going to do anything, what can others do? What, for example, can federal judges do? Well, you know, in this very polarized environment, it's, it's going to be difficult to, to, to get any sort of consensus approach. But I'd love to see uh, it become known that uh, federal judges will ask uh, clerkship applicants to submit in writing um, whether uh, they have disrupted uh anyone's uh, speaking at a public event, and if so, to describe the circumstances. Uh, now, again, if that's just done by conservative judges and the progressive students who, who disrupt speech uh, aren't interested in clerking for them anyway, maybe that doesn't accomplish much. I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, there may be a problem, too, with some conservative students who have allowed themselves, for understandable reasons, to be bullied by um, some of these uh, pro progressive students. And maybe they need to be... Uh, uh, stiffened up a bit and not acquiesce um, in uh, these disruptions. Um, Tim, I'd love to get your commentary on that. I mean, um, you were in that room. Do you think there's anything um, that you could have done to change this environment? And I'm not trying to, to throw this yes. back on you by any means. I'm just, none of us were in that room. And so the question yeah. is like, with the with 2020 hindsight, do you think there's anything you could have done or, or was the environment so out of control um, that, that you, I mean, you were sort of powerless to, to stop the goings on. You know, a, a couple quick points I want to make, you know, related to what Jennifer uh, said about universities admitting activists, you can find Stanford professors who will go on the record and say that I think about five years ago, our provost uh, in talking about what Stanford is looking for university wide said we are looking for activists. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that is not a secret. You know, that is that is an out loud thing. I think something people don't understand is I, you know, I've been on a lot of calls this week and people say, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to write letters to the dean. We're going to we're going to quit giving. Stanford has 40 billion dollars, 40 billion with a B dollars. Everyone can quit giving today. And they if they really want to, you know, if the, if the constituencies that matter, which are unfortunately, you know, the rabble and the student and slash administrative faculty, if they all really want to keep driving the ship this way. Um, they can, they have $40 billion to do it. Right. Uh, and so you, I don't think we can give up on these institutions because they just have so much power and so much money. But at the same time, I, I think that, you know, saying I'm going to quit giving my $200 a year or whatever to Stanford, uh, that's not going to, that's not going to make a difference. And so, you know, we need to do something a bit stronger. And you said, what could I have done differently uh, about this event? Um, you know, this has been uh, very disappointing for me because sort of the, the rationale for my year as FedSec president was, you know, we were not going to be Yale, right? We were going to be a big, strong and fun group. We were going to have great relationships with our administrators. You know, we, we talked with them often. Uh, we were going to try to do events with other student groups, no takers, right? Like early in the year, last year, you know, ACS uh, had this bizarre thing. They said they would only do an event with us if I personally certified the 2020 election. Uh, 
you know, there were just all of these totally weird things. And, um, you know, and, and so this feels like a complete repudiation of my theory of the federal society, right? You know, we should have, we shouldn't have been, you know, the fact that this happened to a federal judge suggests that we should have had Ann Coulter the first week. Uh, they could have gotten it out of their systems and, you know, then we would have been fine. It's just, you know, there's going to be this sort of ritual mob of some conservative speaker periodically. Uh, and if, you know, the most, the most objectionable person happens to be a federal judge, they're going to be subjected to this. So, you know, I think that there's something to be said for being a lot more aggressive. And uh, it turns out that working very hard to be conciliatory and build relationships gets you exactly zero. And I, I'm um, really disappointed by this. As George W. Bush learned the second he set foot in Washington. Um, I, I, I have a, just want to insert here. Um, either one of you can answer this and, and Jennifer can as well. But uh, I think it's worth pointing out here what the underlying offense allegedly of Judge Duncan actually is. So, Tim, do you want to tell us what the what the alleged excuse for this level of disruption and protest was? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of the big laundry list of any objectionable decision from the Fifth Circuit since he's been there, objectionable to the left, right? But the hook, the primary thing is uh, a situation in which the judge refused to refer to a defendant by their preferred pronouns. And in this situation, this was a, a criminal defendant who had been convicted of a sex offense after conviction uh, changed their pronouns and the judge was like not having it and didn't didn't uh, abide by their preferred pronouns and so pronouns you know that that's that's what got us all of this if i may uh, it was even uh worse than that in the sense that the opinion that judge duncan issued um understood the prisoner to be asking for an order compelling the district court and the government to refer to him by his new pronouns. Uh, Judge Duncan spelled out that he had no authority to do so. He also put in this chart of whatever, 76 different sets of pronouns that people are using and just showing how unworkable this would be. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite, um, you know, quite a thin read on which to, uh, uh, you know, keep all this abuse. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's, so pathetic about this, but perhaps most interesting about it is it, it, in some sense, it didn't really matter, as you said, whether it was Judge Duncan or some other judge or Ann Coulter, right? And and these these things are happening all over the country. There was an incident at Yale Law School last school year um, that actually involved my stepmother, Kate Stith, a professor there who was moderating an event. Um, and it was an event with a speaker from, from the left and the right who were there to talk about this about free speech. Um, there were objections. I mean, you know, you can't even have a debate, right? It's, it's not just that you can't bring conservative speakers. You, you, you can't even have a debate with somebody on the other side. Um, and the students did, you know, essentially the same thing, um, shouted down uh, uh, the speakers and, you know, as I think we have a graphic that shows from the New York Post about it, but um, ultimately, uh, after the event, I think there were over 200 students who signed a petition asking that Kate Stith, my stepmother, be sanctioned simply for agreeing to moderate the panel. Um, so the fact that there are 200 Yale Law students who think that a, somebody should be sanctioned for moderating a discussion is... In and of its, I mean, that is just so disturbing to me. Um, 
And it has serious implications, I think, about the state of the legal profession going forward. Um, and these these people are presumably going to become uh, government officials, judges, right? I mean, they go to Yale and Stanford Law School. So in some Democratic administration down the road, these may be the very people who are running the place. Um, well, to, illustrate, to illustrate the decline, I uh, took part in an event at Yale some 15 years ago or so where a fellow panelist um, was being protested by students um, and by the, the Yale Law School Dean, Harold Coe, who was happy to get in on the picture too. But what they did is their protest was to, to get up and leave quietly when it was his turn to speak. You know, it, it, it seemed a little silly to me at the time, but it's you know, so much better than what's being done now. I, I, I wish I had had the foresight to salute them back then. Right. Well, and one of the things that's sort of scary to me is the incident at Yale and the incident at Stanford and these other incidents are, are if you look at them, they're basically using the same script. And right. So they're being orchestrated. Um, they're not organic, spontaneous events. They say the same things to the protesters. You know, you hurt people I care about. Your opinions cause trauma. Um, you know, even just you being here on this campus is, is ripping apart the fabric of our community. It's not worth it. You know, we believe in free speech. But is it really worth it when you're hurting so many people? I mean, it's it's all exactly the same. And the notion that this is sort of an organic, you know, response to a provocative speaker is, is not the case. I mean, they're probably planning their next one right now at some other law school. You're right. There definitely was a feeling that this was much more organized than protests in the past. And I can't figure out really why that was, you know, because it was. Well, but, but I can't I can't figure out who had the like logistical ability to do that. And also definitely the message seems to be out there to call the university's bluff because it used to be, you know, oh, the university would purportedly sanction you or, you know, eject you or whatever. But now it's pretty clear people understand they can filibuster an event. Like they can really just hijack uh, an entire hour if they want to. What, what are the consequences? I mean, we're talking about Yale, Stanford, right? Um, these law school classes are going to feed into all of the top law firms. They're going to feed into the Justice Department. They're going to feed into top government agencies. What are the consequences? I guess we'll go with Ed and then Tim. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. What will the consequences, the broader consequences be when these classes of students are not just DEI administrators in the universities from which they're coming, um, but quite literally running the government. Well, as a father of college students, I would emphasize that the problem begins before law school at the, uh, and it probably begins uh, in, in, in most places well before college and what's happening now in the, the high schools and, and, and grade schools, especially with the uh, political indoctrination on, on, on so many issues. But look, when you have people who, uh, who demonize others, who can't, um, are not willing to engage in, in, uh, reasoned, if vigorous argument. Um, that is, I think, very, very threatening to civil society. I had a nice lunch the other day with a friend of mine who's an ardent liberal. We were able to talk through all sorts of issues and, 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 and disagreements, understanding that, you know, that, that, that that's what you do. And for those of us who went to law school in a certain time where, you know, most of my friends were liberals, um, we could still talk through things. Sure, they disagree, but there wasn't this, oh, you know, you, you are uh, not to be part of our um, community. Uh, so it's, I, I think it's, uh, it's very, very damaging. 
Um, Tim, Tim, what do you think about the same question? I mean, does it give you pause to think that um, these among your classmates are likely, you know, going to be wielding a substantial amount of wealth and power um, in five or 10 years? Well, I think Ed's right. That this is a bigger problem than just, you know, the elite law schools or just law schools. It's, it's a problem. It seems to be across a lot of academia. I think as specifically applies to law, which is your question, I just don't buy that this uh, this can keep working, where schools graduate these very fragile and temperamental people, uh, and then they go to these elite law firms where you're told, you know, work 80 hours a week and work on whatever we put in front of you. And, uh, you know, that that's why we can charge so much. You know, you, how are you going to run an elite law firm where you everybody you hire says, you know, there are all these different kinds of clients I won't serve. Uh, there are all these kinds of judges who I'm too triggered by to appear before. Uh, you know, my mental health is such that I can work precisely 30 hours a week. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be perpetually offended by everyone else uh, who works here. You know, I, I disbelieve that this is going to function. And I don't really know where that ends, right? I, I think the, the top law firms have really well, it, strong brands. It doesn't brands end unless the people in charge put their foot down, right? But, but, and but, as long as the people... Like, if people can't do the work, right? If people, right. law firms, you know, Unlike law school, where we can, you know, Stanford has a bad bar passage rate. It doesn't really have grades. You can spend three years being an activist and not learn anything and get the diploma, it turns out. You can't really do that at a law firm, right? Like law firms have to produce work that is functioning. Um, you know, can these people do it? Not sure. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, well, law firms are, are like, I mean, I just, I, I just heard from a friend who got back from a law school retreat, right? Um, and you have junior associates screaming at partners about this stuff. I mean, it it's doesn't stop in, in the law schools. It continues into even these firms. And I, I mean, I think you're right, Tim. Like at some point, somebody has to do this, these 80 hour a week jobs that actually produce real billable hours. Um, and maybe right, there's the a stopping point somewhere. They but... can just, I mean, I, I, th I believe that the, um, the powers that be at most of these law firms are afraid of these people and they're afraid of, you know, being called racist or sexist or traumatizing or whatever. And so they don't put their foot down. Now, now you're right. If they can't do the work, they'll eventually be chewed up and spit out by these places only to be replaced by other people just like them. Right. So, so, um, you know, unless the management committee really draws a line in the sand and says, you know, no, we're not even going to entertain these types of complaints. It's, you know, it's going to, I don't know. I, I mean, I know that's sort of a very doomsday outlook, but I find it very depressing. Well, I, I have a very doomsday outlook. Like, I just don't see this working out. And I think you know, your question about people becoming judges, uh, you're going to end up with a, a system where you have sort of, you know, very federalist judges who say, you know, we're going to look at the look at the text and we're going to do this textual work. You're going to end up with people who are picked to be judges because of their work as activists. And we're just going to say, you know, uh, uh, this is what I want to do. Here you go. And that's going to be catastrophic. I mean, one, you're going to have crazy circuit splits and totally unpredictable decisions. Uh, and people are just going to have no confidence at all in our justice system. So if this actually continues the way it's going, things will be catastrophic. Yeah, though I agree with Inez that the situation is already, um, from what I hear from my friends, very, very bad 
in law firms. I have a friend yeah. who's one of the most distinguished lawyers in town who said that he's like one raised eyebrow away from being driven out of the firm. <laughs> you know, uh, and this again, this is this is so radically different from what I faced. It's been it's been uh, more than thirty years since I was in, in uh, with a law firm, but um, you know. Uh, I liked my colleagues. I was well liked by my colleagues. I was the same person back then. You know, now I, 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 it's difficult for me to imagine what the environment would be like. Well, you, I mean, you do see people splintering off, right? So you saw uh, Clement and Murphy break off and, and found their own firm. And so there's, I mean, I guess, you know, on the positive side, there's this growing group of conservative boutique law firms that can take you know, any case they want without, um, you know, worrying about about that the leadership of the firm won't allow it. So I guess that's a that's a net positive. Right. Um, but. You know, I I'm just trying to look on the bright side. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to introduce something uh, really interesting. I think that Heather McDonald wrote in uh, City Journal, which she applies it to. Uh, the university writ large, um, but I, I want to ask you guys about its application here because what I said in the beginning is really true. The, the the particular therapeutic language of this dean, right? And she's standing up there, she's wielding power um, over this event as an administrator, as a representative of the law school. Um, and she's saying, I'm so uncomfortable, right? I feel so uncomfortable up here as she's wielding power. And there's this, to me, maddening, but like there's this very familiar therapeutic cadence to what she's talking about, where, where Jennifer also mentioned like, oh, you're tearing the fabric of this community, right? Um, there, there are these like sort of therapeutic phrases that get repeated over and over again. Um, Heather McDonald uh, wrote this recently. Sorry, this is uh, bad, <laughs> it's on top, overlaid on top of us. Um, but she wrote this piece in... Um, in City Journal about the feminization of the American University, where she points to um, the fact that women make up 66% of college administrators. Um, they are the majority of, of students. I believe they are now the strong majority of students in law schools in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then she writes, female students and administrators often exist in a codependent relationship united by the concepts of victim identity and of trauma. For university females, there is not apparently strength in numbers. The more females' ranks increase, the more we hear about a mass nervous breakdown on campus. Female students disproportionately patronize the burgeoning university wellness centers, massage therapies, relaxation oases, calming corners, and healing circles. Um, so she points to this relationship between the concept of the university as essentially as like a, a therapeutic place. Um, rather than having a, a concrete end towards truth, or in this case, towards learning the practice of law. Um, and, and this is not to say that only only women or female students or female administrators behave this way, but she's pointing to this sort of feminization and therapeutization, if that's a word, of the university. Do you think that, what do you think about that thesis? Um, I guess, Tim first, and then Ed, um, what do you think about that thesis? Do you experience that um, kind of therapeutization of education in, in um, Stanford Law School and beyond. Um, and then what do you think, what impact? I mean, we've already little talked about it, but like, are, are, is this kind of environment actually going to be able to produce forgetting about billing, you know, billable hours and 80 hour work weeks in a law firm? Are we going to be able to produce prosecutors who can, for example, prosecute rape um, out of this kind of therapeutic environment? Well, I, I think, I think there are a couple things here. So first, uh, 
there's, there's definitely something very weird about the way the university is set up here. You know, we have graduate student housing and there are all these administrators who, you know, plan events and help you manage things with your roommate. And you're like, this is housing for people in their late 20s and older. You know, if they were real adults, like, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, people my age in Cleveland rent apartments. And if they don't get along with their roommates, they work <laughs> it out. You know, they don't call their landlord and say, I need you to come and, you know, bring, facilitate. bring, bring me free food and facilitate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you, you have to be an adult at some point. So this daycare for very old people is not good. You know, something that I, for some reason, George Will, I, I've, you know, I, I actually met a long time ago, but have not talked to you about this, is the only article that sort of mentions, and just sort of an aside, uh, the president of Stanford Federal Society is an openly gay man. I'm openly gay. Uh, and that's probably not a great sign that the two best men you have on our side at the moment at the good schools is going to be me and Amy Wax, right? Like, you know, the only people willing to, like, uh, tough it out. And and so well, what happened, actually, that the only men who are vocal at Stanford Law School tend to be gay men. It, it's this very interesting thing because, you know, when we're vocal and when we are aggressive, our aggression is never focused on women. I think it's this very interesting thing. So, so it's okay, right? We can be outspoken. Uh, we can we can get away with saying things that the straights can't because the straights have to be, you know, they have to really like Biden and they have to really keep their heads down and they have to really, really be committed to allyship. Uh, and that, that's how they sort of make it through. And that's a, a bad thing. I think I think something very, very diabolically wrong has happened. Um, so I don't know that feminization per se is, is what it is, but it's certainly this infantilization that we're going to, you know, keep everyone in sort of an adult daycare uh, until they are in their 30s. And as part of that, um, you know, sort of straight male energy is very bad, right? You really you really don't want that because, you know, it's, it leads to Title IX problems and it leads to aggression and it's, you know, these things. <laughs> yeah, there's like, uh, there's so, like no, no dad is coming home in an hour energy in these universities, you know what right, I mean? There's like no, right. there's nowhere where the buck stops, no one with responsibility. This applies to men and women, but like there's none of that sort of, dad puts his foot down at the end of the day energy with any of these people no no there's like you know dad is probably uh, an older straight professor who is hanging on who will go to the faculty senate and be, you know say his piece and then be ridiculed and that's if dad is very courageous no, no, no. otherwise they get nothing he'll be brought up on title nine charges for well but I, and, and we i can i can tell you who those people are Stanford. they really fight hard you know, Russell Berman particularly is incredibly courageous. Uh, and I think he used to run, he used to be the president of MLA, so he can kind of get away with saying some things. But, you know, he he is saying just obviously true things and everyone just sort of stares at him. It is it is nuts. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that that the bureaucrats in many of these places outnumber the faculty. And even where they don't outnumber the faculty, they they have power over tenured faculty that they didn't used to have and they can ruin their lives. And so right. even the, the so-called grown-ups in the room, particularly if they're straight white males are afraid to speak up. Now, maybe if you're a member of a, you know, supposedly marginalized group, it, if, you know, even if you're, you're just a woman, right. Even if you're a majority, you, it sort of empowers you to speak up a little bit because you could say, well, I don't agree with this as a woman, but um but yeah, people are afraid because the bureaucrats have too much power. And really, when you get back to Inez's earlier question about what can we do about this, we need to start with firing the bureaucrats. We start with the DEI bureaucrats, but it's not just them. It's the student life bureaucrats, the Title IX bureaucrats. I mean, 
that we need to cut down university bureaucracies by about 80 or 90 percent. And may I just say one other thing on this? You know, the language of uh, I'm not comfortable. This is this is actually part of the problem. And I said it in the terms of like making daycare for three year olds. But by the time you are in graduate school, uh, school probably shouldn't be comfortable. Right. Like we shouldn't torture students. But law school in particular, it's very (laughs) academically hard. Uh, You really do have to have your beliefs challenged. You, if you're going to enter this profession, which also is hard, uh, it should be challenging. And this idea that our goal is comfort is a misplaced one, right? Like, even if you get rid of the, uh, you know, administrative bureaucracy, if the university's focus is, you know, how can we make this a comfortable environment? That's not going to work. You see, you, you know, they keep adding administrators, they keep adding counselors, they keep adding, you know, therapy dogs or whatever. The suicide rates up the stress and anxiety up. It turns out this isn't like a you know, Marxist thing where you can just pour more input into it and people will feel more better. Uh, focusing on comfort was the wrong idea. We should say, you know, we're going to create great advocates and great lawyers. And, uh, you know, if somebody does something that is egregious, that really makes somebody miserable, like we have a professor say, you know, I'm going to make, you know, shame people loudly and publicly. Maybe that's that's not great, but we're not going to have all this infrastructure. Philarita shamed me publicly and loudly on a weekly basis. I mean, that was no, not anymore. Be a lawyer. <laughs> um, well, as a, as have a, they gotten rid of cold calling? I'm just I'm just curious. <laughs> we kind of have rid of, like, calling, the Socratic method in cold calling. You, you, you can pass and you can email in advance and say, you know, I'm not up to it today. My, you know, my mental health won't allow me to be cold called. Uh, sort of the standard thing is to have a panel. So you're going to be cold called, but you know, like one of these two days. So it's all just much more sort of calm yeah. now. And, and I'm not sure the classroom is the problem, but sort of the over wraparound that we're going to like run a daycare. Uh, not good. Well, I, I agree with Tim that this uh, daycare paradigm uh, accurately describes things. Um, as a father of uh, three strong young women and the father-in-law of another, I'm reluctant to use the term feminization for this, um, though I can see Heather McDonald's point that there certainly uh, is a cohort of women scholars who have been pushing this um, therapeutic daycare type notion. Um, but again, the question isn't simply, will we have people who can, you know, uh, prosecute uh, or defend bad guys in court, will we have people who can step up to be fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and you know raise the next generation? I don't, I don't know how much of this is a result of a breakdown uh, in the family and how much of it is just is going to be an accelerant in the future. But what model do we have for young people about uh, what their lives ought to be like, about where happiness is really found? I think Tim makes a profound point that... Uh, this uh, uh, this temptation of comfort. No, that's not, you know, coddled like, being coddled like a baby uh, is, is not a way, especially um, is, is, is not a way to, to think that you've achieved something. And so uh, we need to have a, a very different uh, ethos in our university, but again, how we go about um, uh, changing that, that's a huge question, well, well beyond my insights. Yeah, and it, it does, it starts at the very earliest ages. I mean, I, you know, I have um, neighbors and relatives with young children, and I'll often hear them say, well, I just want my kids to be happy. And I always respond by saying, no, you don't. You want them to be resilient, you know, right. right? I mean, you shouldn't want them to be happy because if you want them to be happy, um, you're setting them up for failure because nobody's happy all the time. And mm-hmm. what you want, what you should try to achieve in parenting is to raise resilient children. And if your children are resilient, then they will be happy more often than they're not. So yeah. maybe on 
that note. That's but totally I, I think Ed, hit, Ed hit something I really wish I'd hit. He said, you know, functioning mothers, fathers, you know, people in the community. I mean, it's just functioning people. You know, I think the way we have this set up right now, we actually decrease resilience over the course of a graduate program because, you know, you're told you're just sort of the functioning things you have to do to be an adult, like, you know, signing a lease and getting along with roommates or whatever, or, you know, a family. Uh, we'll take care of that. Uh, the ability to make friends. Well, we'll have events, you know, we'll create belonging. I mean, you, you, you're you going to go to some strange city and again, work 80 hours a week at a law firm. You need to be able to make friends and get along with people and have human connection. And uh, I, I don't think, I don't see Skadden higher creating this, but maybe they will. I mean, maybe that's going to be the future. The law firm will each have to say, you know, now we're going to have, you know, a cultural event to help you make friends and have belonging. Um, but, but, but this is nuts. I mean, you know, it's really, really nuts. Really tell people join a church, right? I mean, that's sort of, um, yeah, we've, we've really replaced, uh, I think, every framework with the therapeutic right starting with the, instead of a family you have therapy or or that some of therapeutic language of some sort instead of employment you have therapy instead of entertainment you have therapy instead of church you have therapy just, and it doesn't work and it doesn't work it makes people right. unhappy and and well, as jennifer maybe, said not resilient. Maybe, maybe it could work if it delivered on its promise right the promise of this will make you a better person but it has a tendency to crash down into you're a fine person as you are. And if you went into therapy knowing, knowing full well that you were not fine as you were, sort of spending all this money and time to have that be the solution uh, is incredibly demoralizing. Right. Well, on that note, um, appropriately philosophical, I think, uh, on that note, um, we're going to have to wrap up. We're coming to the end of our time here. But um, Tim, uh, Ed, thank you so much for, for joining at the bar. Um, this has been a really enlightening discussion. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I just want to urge people to check out um, Ed's new Substack, which is called Confirmation Tales. Um, it's a really riveting look at the confirmation process from behind the scenes um, and a historical look at, at um, big confirmation battles of the past. So anybody who's interested in the law and the courts and um, how judges are appointed, nominated and confirmed should check that out. Confirmation Tales on Substack.com. And as always, At The Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. And you can also listen to it as a podcast uh, on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture.